Hey guys, guys, come here, come here, come here. I'm whispering because this is like a preamble, an intro to the regular intro, so I have to whisper to, you know, sneak it in there. I just finished editing this episode, and I realized that I don't actually talk about the biblical text that I based the episode on this week until maybe 15, 20 minutes into the actual episode. So if you're the type of person that doesn't care for my rants or my personal digressions or me talking about movies, then maybe just skip this episode or at least skip 15 minutes into the episode. If you do like those things, however, hooray! It's an episode almost entirely about those things, so enjoy! That signpost up ahead, your next stop, is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. Hello, I am your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. Today, we are on question 29 of this show. If you've never listened to this show, it's a simple little show where we talk about biblical questions and then don't come up with a good answer. Makes sense, right? (laughs) This week, we're going with the very provocative-sounding question, Was the Devil Right? And let's not hold our horses, let's not pull our punches, let's just get into it right now. I think we all come up with our own sniff tests for things, right? That's the notion that Certain ideas or concepts or even certain people, political maybe, they have to pass the sniff test in order for you to trust them or to buy into whatever they're selling. I remember several years back, I think it was 2008, when there was a Democratic nominee for president, a guy running in the primaries, John Edwards. And for me, he, you know, he looked really nice, good looking guy. He kind of had this JFK vibe going on with him. And what he said was was good, but for some reason... You know, my instinct, my sniff test of him just never passed its muster. I always thought, this guy's lying to us. He's just telling us what we want to hear. So I never, I never bought into the John Edwards train. And uh, sure enough, you know, he was cheating on his wife who had cancer and a lot of bad stuff came out about him. So I felt vindicated in my sniff test. But I realize there's a lot of things that I subconsciously or consciously have sniff tests for. So I want to start today's program out by asking a question that, for me, encapsulates a sniff test for a particular theology. And that question is, are there real tragedies in the world? Now, I think the simple answer, of course, is yes, of course, of course there is. That's the sniff test for me, right? A lot of bad things happen, and (laughs) there's no other way to describe them but to say that is a horrible thing, that is a tragedy. And as I was prepping for the show, I was trying to think of what metaphor what story to tell that would best encapsulate this idea of there is absolutely tragedy in the world at least from my perspective and you know there's a lot of horrible historical stories out there of just terrible things that have happened there's there's no lack of stories to pull from but the one i want to pull from today and sorry for just being debbie downer but that's how it is you know it's a, this show tends to deal with darker stuff so uh, that's just That's just how it is, guys. (laughs) So, forgive me in advance for this sad story. But it's a fake story, right? It's a literary story, so at least we can all take consolation in that this specific event hasn't actually happened. When I think about tragedies in their purest form, I don't know if that makes sense, the purest tragedy, like it has to happen to someone who's completely innocent. When the alcoholic 
finally drinks himself to death or the druggie overdoses. Yes, those are sad things, but they don't quite encapsulate this idea of tragedy for me. Like, when it comes down to it, in my mind, tragedy is when the world reveals itself to be a far worser place than we thought. When the harsh reality of the world kicks in and deals its cards cruelly to the innocent. That, to me, seems like tragedy. And so my metaphor for this was the movie, and I believe it's based on a book, Plague Dogs. So this was an animated film that came out in the early 80s. And I'm just going to spoil the whole movie for you and or book. But I don't feel like there's many of you out there that are just waiting for your chance to watch Plague Dogs. So in me spoiling the plot of the movie, I'm ruining everything. (laughs) But if by any chance you don't want this spoiled, I don't know, skip ahead a couple minutes. The movie is, from moment one to the bitter end of it, completely devastating. It's an animated film, certainly not for children. I would never show it to my child. If I had a child, which I don't. But it starts out, and it's in, like, this scientific experiment building chamber. And this dog is being drowned. He's in, a, he's in like, this pool, and he's just forced to paddle, doggy paddle, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Until he can't do it anymore. He's too exhausted. He gives up. And you see him drown. And then a scientist pulls him out of the pool and gets his heart going again. Gets the water out of his lungs, and they revive him. And then they put him back into a kennel, and he's right next to another little dog, who's the other main character of it. And that dog has, like, been given the Black Plague, I guess? Or some sort of plague. I forget if it's actually the Black Plague. But he's got a part of his fur on his head completely shaved down, because they keep, you know, injecting needles into his brain or whatever. So it's, like, a horrible, horrible world where dogs are being tortured for scientific progress. But the one dog who's just drowned again, he's talking to his buddy, and he's at his wit's end, and he just says, Why do they do it? Why do they do this to us? And he reveals that he's been drowned like five, six, seven, eight times already. So this is a repeated nightmare that just keeps happening to this poor dog. Well, the plot of the film then is somehow this drowned dog and another smaller dog, I don't know, maybe it's like a lab and like a terrier of some sort, just to give you context for the sizes of these dogs. They managed to escape from the scientific chamber world. And then the whole plot of it is the government trying to track these two dogs down. And so they're constantly on the run, constantly hiding, fearful of it. And of course, this one dog, like the little terrier, has got like the black plague or something. So the government wants to just shoot these dogs dead, you know, because they might carry horrible diseases and infect many people and cause all this havoc. So these two dogs just being alive equals a horrendous threat to mankind and to humanity. But the whole movie, we're loving these two dogs and they're so innocent and they just want to be free and you grow so attached to them and they're being hunted by like a helicopter with a machine gun and all these horrible things and at the very end of the film there's kind of been this whole mythology that there's an island somewhere where man won't hurt these dogs and if they could just get to the island and they finally get to the ocean and of course like there's a whole bunch of government people chasing them and they're right on their tails and all the dogs have to do is jump into the ocean and swim to the supposed, you know, island paradise, which may or may not be there. And the terrier, the one with the black plague, jumps in right away. But for the other dog, he has to come toe-to-toe with his worst nightmare. He's drowned so many times, he can't, he can't will himself to jump into that ocean. And all he has to do is jump in and swim away. But water equals death, and he's so terrified of it. It just embodies this horrible 
worldly despair. To me, it's just such a welling up of almost, I want to say, like, divine tragedy. Just, you can't get sadder than that for this poor little dog. Okay, maybe this metaphor, maybe this story hits base with you. Maybe that makes you feel for these dogs. Maybe you're one of those people out there that doesn't really care about animal stories and doesn't empathize with animals and you're like, whatever, Dante, tell me something real. Maybe you're one of those people. But the whole illustration is to point out that under my interpretation, a theology like Calvinism, and I'm using that term Calvinism really just to embrace any completely deterministic worldview, a predestination in all accord, that type of worldview to me doesn't allow for real tragedy. That's why I've never been able to embrace Calvinism or a theology that says everything that happens is under God's will. Everything that happens is according to God's design. Now, I said in our very first intro episode to this podcast that I didn't want this show to be about theology. And I don't want to go down the rabbit trails of debating Calvinism versus Arminianism or all the other sorts of isms. I've just wanted this show to be about the Bible itself and grappling with the concepts that the Bible distinctly discusses. And one of the things that's interesting about the Bible is that it does not provide for us a annotated theology. It doesn't say, here are the 25 characteristics of God. One, he is immutable. Two, he is all-knowing. Three, he is all-doing. He's omnipotent. It doesn't say that. Now, we can derive a lot of those things from the text, from the thousand-plus pages of the Bible. But for me... (laughs) I have to also acknowledge that in doing the show, in wrestling with these questions week to week, I'm forced by my own wrestling, by my own struggle here, to evaluate change in my own thought process and my own life. So I'm going to take you on that a little bit here. And, and today's question is kind of a caveat or a means by which for me to explore these thoughts with you. So two episodes ago, episode 27, we asked the question, does God regret? And we had my friend Jonathan Benedetti on and he said... In context of this discussion of a certain theology, open theism. I've heard open theists talk from the perspective of actually trying to preserve the integrity of what is written in the Bible in passages where, like we've referenced, where it seems that God is surprised or that God is, you know, regrets or that he is moved in some way, that he actually is not only a director in the play, but that he's actually an actor or a participant Mm. in the story. And again, I'll restate that more or less the opposite of this open theistic perspective is the Calvinistic predestined view. And I realized that choosing these views sculpts how I read scripture. Because (laughs) the Bible says both that God regrets and that God never changes. It says more or less both things. Now, I'm being liberal in my construction of those two statements. But one could certainly make an argument that the Bible says both these paradoxical, asymmetrical ideas. So then, the theology that you embrace directs which scripture you prioritize and which scripture you then say, okay, this is being literal. God's making a literal point or a very concrete point about who he is. And this other one is using some sort of metaphor or or anthropopathism or some secondary thing to make a secondary point. So I feel like I have to, at some point, make some decisions about what theology I embrace because that directly influences how I read the text of the Bible. But here's my problem. I just read this book on open theism. After my discussion with Jonathan, after we released 
episode 27, I decided I gotta get to a point where I have a satisfactory understanding of what open theism is so that I can, for my own sake, reject it or accept it or take aspects of it. Because I just felt ill-equipped to defend it or to reject it or to do anything with it. So over the past couple weeks, I've been reading through this book. I just finished it called The God Who Risks. And this is more or less a treatise on what open theism is. It's a defense of open theism. And he uses a lot of other terminology, but I'm just going to stick with open theism as the blanket coverall for our purposes today. So both open theism and Calvinism, or both open theism and determinism, cover a lot of different ideas. But I'm going to try to simplify it by saying that Calvinism believes in a God who determines everything. Now, they have a fancy way of explaining how we can still be accountable for our sins while God predestines those sins to occur, right? So they would say something to the effect that even though you sin or you steal that magazine from the gift shop and God predestined that you steal that magazine, you still made the conscious decision to do that, even though God foreknew it, predestined it, and the like, which is confusing to me. And I think they come to this conclusion because God is the creator of all things, which also includes time. And so they see time. And so for them, if God doesn't know something, God is no longer omniscient. So he is no longer the God he claims to be. So God must know all things all the time. And so what that happens to be then is like a big bang, some moment in pre-creation, some moment before God created the universe, there was a God big bang, for lack of a better word or expression. And he knew all of history, beginning to end. He knew he knew the travel of every molecule, every enzyme, every macrocosm. He knows everything that would ever happen all at once before time began. So because of that, he knew Adam was going to sin. He knew Abraham would sacrifice Isaac if he asked him to. He knew he would have to send Jesus to the cross. He knew that Jesus would resurrect. He knew that I would be born August 6, 1986 at 8.06 a.m. He knew all these things from that moment. And because he foreknew that, there was no room for real freedom in that expression, right? So some would put it that God created the world that would most glorify himself. So when you come across things that appear to be real tragedy, it's not. Because that is still that thing, that horrible thing. Whether it's a dog with a horrible fear of drowning or someone being raped or someone being murdered. That still fits into the universe that God specifically created, specifically predestined to glorify him the most. So it is therefore necessary that that person be raped, that person be murdered, that dog fear drowning. Therefore, it's not really a tragedy. It's part of the best of all possible worlds in the Calvinistic mindset. That, to me, is incompatible with expressions in the Bible that say God is love. How is God loving if he predestines all these horrible, miserable evils in the world? Doesn't make sense to me. Therefore, open theism is very seductive. Open theism, as far as I understood and as far as this book that I read explains it, is that Time is more of a psychological construct than a reality. That is to say, there is only ever the present. There is no such thing as a tangible past or a physical future. So God being omniscient, God knowing all things, would be knowing all things up until this moment. Obviously, he would have a memory. He would have a, a complete embodiment in his mind's eye of everything that's happened already. The past's present. But he, he wouldn't have an all-encompassing foreknowledge or a predestined future because that future isn't a reality yet. So this is how an open theist would explain that there's still 
freedom for the individual. And this is also how the open theist explains passages like Genesis 6-6 that we looked at two weeks ago, where God expresses regret or remorse or, or these apparent emotions based on what people do. God responds and interacts with human beings. Now here, too, there's something that doesn't quite pass my sniff test. And that's that, according to open theism, which still says God is omniscient, knowing everything that there is possible to know, God more or less just predicts what's going to happen, right? So he knows everything about me, so he knows that I'm going to choose Coca-Cola when I'm offered Coca-Cola or Pepsi. He knows that's my preference, he knows that's what I'm going to do. That sounds nice, but I still don't quite buy it, because... If you know absolutely everything about me, you know my gene makeup, you know what happened to me when I was seven years old on the gymnasium, you know every single detail, every variable that's ever happened to me, and you know every variable of everything else, I don't understand how you wouldn't still know with absolute certainty what is going to happen next and next and next and next. You know, God would know how long my walking stride is based on you know, various mathematical principles. And so he would know that I'm going to stub my toe because I'm stepping a little bit too long into that side of that wall. I still don't see how there's quite room for things to be open, even under that premise. (laughs) So that leaves me in quite a quandary. Now no theology passes my sniff test, and I'm kind of where I began. (sighs) Alright, that big monologue over. Let's look at the scripture of this week. Was the devil right? Now hopefully that big speech in the beginning will pay dividends here as we look at this passage. So what am I talking about? What am I potentially saying the devil is right about? The fall of man. Alright? We're talking Genesis 1-3. through We're talking the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent. Now for sake of simplicity, I'm assuming that the serpent equals the devil equals Satan. Those are all big one unhappy snake dude. By the way... A poisonous snake bit my dog a couple weeks ago, so I'm still in that pack of thinking that all snakes are evil. I just thought you would like to know that. I love animals. I have sympathy for almost every creature on earth. Not for them snakes. Them snakes bit my dog. Dog had to go on antibiotics to not die. I love my dog. Do not love the snakes. Unnatural. That's all I have to say about that. Anyway, so you probably know the story, right? Six days of creation, God creates man last, then God creates woman out of man's rib, and God has but one rule for man and woman. So I'll pick up the story here, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? There's a commandment. And a consequence. There's this fruit I don't want you to eat. If you eat it, you're going to die. Okay, jumping ahead to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, that's the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so now we have God's word, and we have the weird talking snake's word. God says, Don't eat of this one fruit, because if you do, you will die on that day. 
Weird Snake Dude says, No, you're not going to die if you eat of that fruit. Only your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So we have one action with two potential consequences, according to two different people. God says there's going to be one consequence. Snake Dude says there's going to be a different consequence. Well, what happens? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so what's the first consequence of eating of the forbidden fruit? Not immediate death, but eyes being opened, just as the serpent suggested. After this incident... God walks in the garden, finds Adam, figures out what happens, and then curses Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Then after those cursings, we pick up the narrative in verse 21 of chapter 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, 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 Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So in that last little section we see God talking to himself, which is a cool little insight into the Trinity early on. But more than that, we see God saying, Okay, look, God is now like one of us, and if he continues to stay in the Garden, he's going to live forever. And so he casts him out. Now, as far as I can tell, there's four explanations for this passage. Either, as soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they became mortal, right? They transitioned from being like eternal beings to being mortal, right? That's why God then says, if they eat of this tree of life, whatever that is, then they'll live forever. So, when God says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die, he means like, the day you eat of it, you will then be mortal so that you will have death inside of you. You know, we're all waiting to die type of mentality. That's option one. God was right, devil was wrong, because eating of the forbidden fruit eventually equals death, right? It equals mortality. Answer number two, which I've heard many theologians say, is this is a spiritual death. As soon as Adam and Eve eat of it, they have now transgressed the law of God, and they can no longer be in God's presence. They are spiritually wrecked beings. And this is what necessitates Jesus Christ. This is what requires the need for salvation. This moment right here, the disobedience of God, brings over the entire earth a spiritual death. So, yes, Adam and Eve died that day because they turned into spiritually dead beings. That's why the hope of heaven is the hope of a resurrection. And that's why scripture talks about being given new bodies. Because we're going to be given spiritually alive bodies, not spiritually dead bodies that we inherited from this line of sin and perversion. That's option two. Option one again, they ate of it, they became physically mortal. Option two, as soon as they ate of the forbidden fruit, they became spiritually dead. Option three, God lied. The serpent was right. There's a way to read the scripture, maybe the simplest way to read the scripture, that, hey, the serpent predicted exactly what happened. Serpent said, you'll eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, and you're not going to die that day. And what happened? Adam and Eve opened their eyes as soon as they ate the forbidden fruit, and they didn't die that day. Yes, some other stuff happened too, like getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But when you compare that to God's words, that you will surely die that day, one of these answers looks better than the other. The serpent seems to be right. That's explanation number three. Explanation number four, however, 
in my current state, where I am in my theology, is the most attractive. Now, I'm not here to convince you that it's the right answer. I'm just reading scripture differently now. One thing I've failed to mention before is that even though I've never embraced Calvinism, I've never embraced this deterministic worldview, I still functioned like it was the true way, right? The Bible says in the book of James that the prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much. But again, in a Calvinistic mindset, that doesn't feel like that should be true, right? Because God's predestined everything, so how could our prayers change God's mind? It can't. That would be impossible. God is immutable in the Calvinistic mindset. The deterministic worldview says that God's already planned everything out. So the only reason I would be praying to God anyway is because God predestined me to pray to God that such and such should happen. And so it's not God actually answering my prayer. It's God predestining me to pray and predestining that answer to that prayer. And even though I haven't embraced Calvinism, I've always kind of felt this, like, there's no real good reason to pray aside from the concept that the Bible tells me to do it. I don't know if I've ever been convinced that my prayers actually change God's mind or that my prayers could affect anything. Now, in open theism's theology, it most certainly can. In open theism, you read Exodus 35, where Moses debates with God and interprets that passage as God actually responds to Moses and is convinced by Moses' arguments. And in that worldview, where we can affect God's attitude towards things under some mystery, then the prayers of a righteous man could accomplish something, because God actually is listening and might actually change his mind about something based on the prayers of that righteous man. That is super seductive and seems like the more loving God. Right? If I have a loving relationship with my child or my father or whoever, when I'm in loving relationships, part of the loving for me to express love is to listen to the other party and to react from that other party. So if God is immutable and never changes, I don't know how his expression of love is transferred aside, you know, from like the salvation aspect. But even that sounds marginalized by this determinism. Anywho, open theism... I think, at least what I read in the book, goes along with this fourth explanation of what's happening here in the Garden of Eden. And that's that perhaps God intended to kill Adam and Eve if they ate the forbidden fruit. But then he's moved by pity and changes his mind. Now, to be honest, the scripture doesn't say that at all, right? This is totally reading into the story. But it it feels like something a loving person would do. It's similar to the prodigal son story. Your son's just made the worst decision he could possibly make. But you're relenting from punishing him. You're relenting from absolute judgment, hoping that he'll still come back to you, hoping that your son will come back to the father he loves. And there is death in the Genesis account, because verse 21 of chapter 3 of Genesis says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them, right? God most likely killed some other animal to clothe Adam and Eve. There was still death. It just, God changed his mind and it wasn't Adam and Eve that died. It was some animal. Now, I could be way off in this explanation. It could totally be what theologians have been saying for centuries, that it was just a spiritual death that happened on that day. But at least in my current state of where I am in the jumble of all this theology mess, I like to think of this this God who interacts and responds to us. I don't know. I should apologize to Calvinists out there and open theists for no doubt butchering both sides of the equation today. I humbly submit them as my imperfect understandings 
of the tenets of your convictions, of the tenets of your theology. I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong on almost all accounts, if not entirely all of them. <laughs> so forgive me for my errors. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey.